Welcome back to this, our 49th show, the Palestine Deep Dive, uh, where we take a special look at the Middle East and a focus on Palestine uh, most of the most of the time. Of course, today we'll be talking about uh, other issues too. Uh, and we look at a, we take a, a wider look at the global situation and we welcome guests who have a particular knowledge and expertise and an insight um, who have got a great deal to share. And we also very much want to hear from all of you. So do please, uh, uh, as our program continues, do send in your questions. Uh, I'm Mark Seddon. I was uh, Al Jazeera's United Nations correspondent. I've worked for uh, the UN Secretary, a UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, and a former president of the UN General Assembly. Um, but far more importantly, uh, we are today joined once again by our very old friend, uh, Ramsey Baroud. And uh, Ramsey, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. It's great to see you again. And great uh, to see you too, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. Just to say, of course, uh, Ramsey is an author, he's a journalist, and he's the founding editor of the Palestine Chronicle. Uh, and, but today, of course, we're going to look at the war in Ukraine, uh, but through Palestinian rather than just Western eyes. Uh, it seems to us that it's very, very important that we take a global view of what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, and many of uh, us sitting here uh, in Europe and in Britain, we'd see a great deal of Western media coverage and we see a lot of Western media analysis. And we have to uh, understand and accept that these events are often seen through a different prism by, by people elsewhere in the world. And that's why it's so important that we have Ramsey uh, with us today. Um, this invasion of Ukraine is in clear breach of the United Nations Charter. Uh, it, there, are, there, there have already been uh, documented um, reports of alleged war crimes. Uh, the International uh, Criminal uh, Court has uh, ordered uh, Russia to cease the invasion and withdraw. And there are over 3 million refugees currently streaming westwards. Of course, uh, for many of these refugees, there is a warmer welcome for them in parts of Europe than there has been in, in some other parts of Europe for refugees from different countries. And this is an issue we will also be looking at this evening uh, because uh, just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean that we don't talk about it. Um, now, you know, Ramsey, I mean, these are extraordinarily momentous times. Um, we wake up each morning to look at new horrors, whether they're attacks on hospitals or uh, uh, missile attacks in urban areas with civilians being killed. There's a report of a, a cinema in Mariupol in Ukraine being uh, bombed this evening, with uh, possibly with people who are hiding underneath to, to keep away from the bombs. Terrible things are happening. Um, clearly, the Geneva Conventions are being challenged. Uh, the International Criminal Court seems to be moving quite quickly in the case of Ukraine to invest alleged war crimes. But I just wonder, you know, you, you know, we, you having witnessed a, a military occupation uh, in Palestine for a, a very long period, all of your life, uh, you see uh, soldiers um, and uh, and you see the international reaction to what is an illegal occupation, but it seems to rather differ. Uh, but tell me, when you first saw those tanks rumble across the border into Ukraine, those first attacks by, by Russian fighter jets on Ukrainian uh, positions, 
What were your immediate thoughts? Um, well, my immediate thought and, and in fact, reaction, it was the first post I wrote about it uh, on Facebook and other social media is that people have the right to defend themselves against military occupation period under any, uh, any circumstance, regardless of the geopolitical nature of that conflict, regardless of who's involved in that conflict, let's get that out of the way. Because as a, as a Palestinian uh, was born and raised in a refugee camp under Israeli military occupation that is sustained and funded and financed by the American government and other European governments, we know very well what military occupation is, not just the violence that is involved in making and sustaining it, but the amount of the humiliation and, and, and the lack of certainty in one's life. And, and the fact that I am talking to you right now from, from the States and not from Palestine is an outcome of this military occupation as well. So we are all, all of us Palestinians are affected in various degrees, of course, but by, by that military occupation of many years ago, in which the so-called international community, or rather the U.S. Western-led international community, has turned a completely blind eye to throughout the years, and are even not only condemning our resistance to it, but rather the mere protest, the mere demand of accountability from the international community is being condemned as, as if uh, um, asking for, uh, for example, boycotting Israel, for what it's doing in Palestine is in itself an, a racist act or an anti-Semitic act. So we are still buried in this massive, uh, um, you know, dichotomy in which we can't even protest without being accused of being anti-Israel or anti-America or anti-this or that compared to what is happening in the Ukraine within the matter of hours. In fact, even before the invasion took place, when the uh, Russian forces were amassing at the Russia-Ukraine border, the condemnations were coming from all over Europe, all over North America. Um, and, and of course, true to form, the double standards uh, is, you know, peering its ugly head once more. And we have to face the reality that the international community does not have a fair and just standards. Uh, in its view of of international conflict, I mean, Ramsey, uh, all, all that you say is is borne out by what actually happened, uh, and it's absolutely clear that uh, the General Assembly moved almost unusually. Um, but I think there have only been ten occasions since 1950 to pass an emergency resolution, uh, whereby Russia uh, received the, the support uh, from only four other member states. It was actually a little reminiscent of um, UN General Assembly votes on Palestine, when it's usually the US with four or five other members of state. But we did see very, very swift um, international action, but particularly um, economic sanctions, um, the sort of things uh, that uh, we cannot talk about in connection with, uh, with Israel and Palestine. But um, But you will have seen also that there were 35 other uh, member states who abstained, including South Africa, including India and China. I mean, even if you, if you, even if you uh, say that India and China may have their own reasons, the, the vote by South Africa and some other countries was, uh, it was quite significant uh, in a way, um, because what they were saying is that they, yes, we do disagree with this invasion. It's illegal. We stand for the UN Charter, but 
I mean, what do you think the reason is that uh, there are some in the global south, some member states, uh, who did abstain um, when it looks pretty clear, uh, you know, that essentially Russia is in breach of the UN Charter? Why did why do you think they abstained? Um, I think they abstained because, well, th there is more than one reason and, uh, to that, uh, Mark. And but I think geopolitics has a lot to do with it. And and let me explain just. Um, a little bit by making a comparison to what happened following the uh, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990 and the resulting war 1990 and 1991, which kind of served as a prelude to what happened to um, uh, in Iraq in 2003 with the complete destruction of the country with the American um, uh, invasion and occupation. Um, quite often in these situations, many countries, as the Palestinian, the PLO, for example, the Palestine Liberation Organization did in the case of Kuwait, and I really do, do not think that their position was immoral in any way. They said, we are against the occupation of Kuwait by Iraq, but this has to be resolved through uh, an Arab platform, because we know that American imperialism and Western imperialism will take advantage of this situation by trying to further their geopolitical interests at the expense of the Arab countries. Um, sadly, that was not the position that was adopted uh, by uh, most countries at the time because of American pressure and American control and dominance. Um, and of course, the PLO, despite the fact that they paid a very heavy political price for this, and that's for a whole different discussion, their position was actually quite uh, correct. It was almost a prophecy indeed the invasion of, uh, of the American intervention and the massive coalition that went to uh, fight uh, uh, Saddam Hussein really ended up altering the nature of the geopolitics of that region and created the foundation of future American intervention. And that's how the Americans became involved, not politically in the Middle East, but militarily as well. Many countries around the world, again, for understand that and understand it very well. Uh, this, they fear that an outright Russian defeat in the Ukraine would be kind of the, the, the last line of defense to these countries that are fighting their own geopolitical fights in their own regions. To give you an example, and I was in Africa quite recent, and I visited several countries and became somewhat familiar with the kind of the, the political tussle that is happening in Africa itself. We know that the U.S. through the, Afri uh, the, the African command uh, is, is trying to widen its scope of operations, whether openly or in a clandestine sort of ways, and trying to further American interest in the region, using NATO, using France in particular. France is very much involved in West Africa, in Mali and in other countries. And, and sadly, we are witnessing a new scramble for Africa. Remember, Mark, only a few years ago, we were talking about the African miracle. We were talking about Africa becoming the engine of the world economy. And yet here, once more, we are talking about Africa being sliced up once more between all of these domains that, by the way, involve China, Russia, Turkey, and also mm. Israel, which has, mm. as of late, became a member, uh, an, an observer member of the African Union. So African countries are very, very wary of the nature of the, of, of the fight that is underway in Africa. South Africa, Nigeria, Algeria, 
and other countries do not want to see this happening. They want a more balanced, bipolar world. And, and there is, maybe there's not a lot of open conversations about it, but there's a mm. lot of interest that's happening right now. Well, to... actually, Ramsey, if I might interrupt, I, mean, I was going to ask you about this um, uh, towards the end of our interview, but uh, since it's come up, I mean, what we are seeing is a degree of speculation and interest at the United Nations that we could actually be beginning to see if there is a return to some kind of uh, new Cold War situation um, in Europe, uh, a revival of the non-aligned movement. Um, do you think that might be might be possible? Would it be a good thing? Would it strengthen the Would it strengthen the Palestinian cause? Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's it's very much possible. Of course, we understand that there are so many moving pieces here. Uh, but if indeed uh, even a stalemate, if a stalemate is achieved, in, in other words, if NATO does not get its way in Ukraine and, and, and uh, in Eastern Europe, and some kind of a compromise is made, will definitely embolden other countries to start negotiating a new political uh, uh, contract, especially in South America, Venezuela in particular, which has been practically starved. I mean, the inflation in South America, in Venezuela at the moment is 700%. Mm. Starting 2014, the Venezuelans were literally running in the streets across borders in their hundreds of thousands because they were not able to buy food anymore. You, you, will, have noticed, Ramsey, Ramsey, in, in the, you will have noticed in the past couple of days there's been a sudden turnaround in Western relations exactly. with both Venezuela and Iran. Uh, Nazanin, um, uh, I've forgotten her second name, but she's heading the the, the, the the individual, the British citizen who was held by the Iranians, some kind of uh, human shield kind of thing. It, she's she's coming back. So, um, you know, there seems to... Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, I beg your pardon. So she's welcome. She's welcome. She's coming back. Everybody's very pleased about that. But it's very interesting that it took this crisis over sanctions and oil and the Russian invasion for this to happen. But look, I, I just wonder, you know, when... Palestinians see all of this going on. I mean, and when they hear, which they must, you know, the likes of ex-President Bush, Condoleezza Rice, Tony Blair, is every week with the algorithm Tony Blair speaks, seemingly unaware of his role in anything that's gone before. But all three of them talking about the how how it's how it's deeply it's illegal it's against international law to invade sovereign countries well quite right it is but yes. they did what do palestinians make of these double standards that we're seeing you know i was just talking to a friend just before our chat uh, mark and i was saying i think we need to revisit the term uh, double standards or hypocrisy it just does not even begin to tell half of the story uh, regarding what's happening in Palestine, what the West, what the Americans are condemning right now regarding Russian, Russia's military uh, behavior and invasion of Ukraine is, mm -hmm. is exactly, in fact, many folks worse uh, has been done in, in, uh, in Iraq in 2003. Israel has been um, doing as a matter of course in Palestine every single day. Uh, and many other contexts, what's happening in Yemen, these millions of poor people are starving, fighting cholera, fighting, you know, bombs falling all on top of them. And the, the weapons, the bombs are being provided by the U.S. government, by the supposedly pacifist Canadian government, by the British, by many others. Um, and yet somehow that is OK. That is 
somehow consistent with international law. But when, when, when some other country does something that doesn't even begin to compare with the intensity of these wars, I mean, remember shock and awe, the first days of the American invasion of Iraq when we used to watch CNN, Fox News, how American commentators used to speak about the, the, how beautiful watching American weapons at work. Uh, I remember the famous high five that happened between two uh, uh, Fox News commentators when, when uh, a massive bomb blows up a bridge in Baghdad. I mean, we have seen horrific things. And I remember also George W. Bush joking and laughing, you know, in some, um, uh, in, 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 in some, like, I think it was during the Oscar or something of that nature, where he was referring to, um, you know, where are the weapons of mass destruction? Maybe over there or over here. Oops. And everybody starts laughing, a joke that costs millions of lives. But we're supposed mm. to completely forget that any of this has ever happened. Mm. And now Boris Johnson and the American government and others are the defenders and the champions of the human rights and the ones who are very keen on the respect of the Geneva Convention and other international uh, um, uh, laws pertaining to, to, to invasions and the laws of war and so forth and so on. Ramzi, this does, this does give an enormous um, opportunity, though, to uh, all of those uh, who have been campaigning and arguing for the UN Charter, for the Geneva Conventions, for the International Criminal Court, which the United States refuses to join, for all these instruments of multilateralism that were set up to just to avoid uh, future wars and invasions and occupations. It's going to be, we hope, much, much more difficult now for anybody to argue against sanctioning countries that occupy others. And that includes Israel. But look, I, I wonder if I could move on, because I think what's been um, what's been quite interesting and also shocking in equal measure, too, is the is the attitude of the uh, of elements of the Western media. And we've got a couple of examples. We might show you them if we can of um uh, an, old, an older recording of a veteran British politician, sadly no longer with us, Tony Benn, uh, who was making the point that the uh, Gaza appeal uh, for uh, aid for Palestinians who had been who had, who had lost loved ones and were seeing facilities being attacked, hospitals and schools, uh, the BBC refused at the time to show this appeal. Um, and we have Tony Benn. I wonder, can, can we... Um, can we see that, uh, Omar? Cast the appeal. I'm going to do it myself. Anyone who wants to contribute, yeah, yes, I'm going you, to do that. And no, I'm sorry, you're not going to stop me. You've been on radio and you've done it already. No, I'm sorry. The Disaster Emergency Committee Gaza Crisis is available at P.O. Box 999, London, EC3A, 3AA. And I know from the BBC, because I've been here most of the morning, nobody here agrees with what the BBC have done. 1,330 people have been killed, 460 children, 5,480 casualties. And the reason the BBC have done it is very simple. The Israeli government objected. Well, the BBC would disagree with you, and they, you did hear the uh, line from management there that it's a question of raising impartiality. The public will be concerned. And the other issue, of course, will the aid actually get to the people? Well, if it? you're telling me that if I send money to Gaza, the BBC's impartiality. I'm sorry, I'm a human being. If you send money to Gaza, though, through an appeal, would, can you be sure that it will get to the people who Well, who in a war it situation, the Israelis have killed 1,330 people. Now, 
uh, Livni, the Israeli foreign minister, said there is no humanitarian crisis. Now, be clear, the Israelis objected to the BBC. That's the reason. I've never met anyone, in, and I've done masses of meetings, I've never met anyone who doesn't think we should give aid to Gaza. But what about the other broadcasters who are also not showing it, though? Well, they're wrong as well. But you see, we are human beings. I know you work for the BBC and I'm a pensioner. We're people. If you saw children dying as they are today in Gaza, because there's no food, medical, wouldn't you want to send it? We, ha we have shown what's been happening in Gaza. I know you've shown it, but I'm talking but, about but, trying just, to help people, people. Yes, but surely people will see it and send the money anyway. What difference does it They don't know the address, and that's it. P.O. Box 999. Well, there we are. I mean, we... Uh, quite rightly, uh, and I'm, not, I'm speaking for Tony Benn, who's no longer with us, who's a very great friend, who would be saying right now, uh, great, it's fantastic to hear on the BBC appeals for Ukraine. How wonderful is the generosity of the British public who are opening their homes? How fantastic it is that media channels uh, are actually reporting and describing and, and letting us know about the various international appeals. But back then... It was a very, very different story. So I, it was just a very good example, Ramsey, to, sh to, to share. That's right. And, and, and not only back then, uh, Mark, until, until this day. I mean, you know, here in the U.S., for example, giving charity to Palestinians have been very, very tightly controlled following, you know, 9-11, the shutting down of the Holy Land Foundation and other organizations and you know, chasing after humanitarians and charity workers. I mean, this continues to be the case until today. The bottom line is that every rule that was set by the West and applied to the Palestinians uh, has been completely destroyed. It has been completely reversed and in the most hideous ways possible. I mean, just on social media, I mean, personally, Facebook kept chasing after my own posts about Palestine you know, the readers and the people who are watching us right now, they know that the kind of speech that I convey in my writing is hardly anywhere, you know, qualified to be a hate speech or anything of that nature. Yet numerous times I have my post deleted, I have been punished and, and had uh, my website put under, you know, um, uh, quarantines for a day or two or a week or two as a result of this to the point that they eventually actually forced me to delete my entire professional page from Facebook. Yet right now it's the exact opposite, the kind of hate speech that is available. It is something that goes beyond anything. And of course... Well, if I, if I may, Ramsey, we had... Um, it's very interesting for what you're saying because we actually had a decision by uh, Nick Clegg, a former British politician who is a very senior uh, employee of Facebook. This corporation actually made the decision that hate speech could be used um, in relation to Russians, uh, to Russian occupiers. So they actually made a specific editorial decision that if you are in Ukraine and you say kill Russian invaders, that is entirely acceptable. I mean, it is quite extraordinary that these corporations have got so much power and such an ability to make moral judgments, which are very often completely inconsistent. That's right, Mark. But it, it also takes me back to the point that you've raised that Palestinians now have this, this incredible opportunity because we have numerous precedents uh, in which we can say, look, the ICC opened an investigation within a day or two, and we have been chasing after you for years. 
and you are yet to move forward with investigating in, you know, uh, war crimes in Palestine. The same thing applies to FIFA, UEFA, the Oli uh, Olympic committees and so forth and so on. But then once again, you know, is it really the matter of kind of showing them evidence that they have been using double standards in order for us to reverse this entire unfair paradigm? Is the system itself structured to be that way, where, where what applies to Israel doesn't apply to the Palestinians, what applies to Ukraine doesn't apply uh, elsewhere? And that's really what, what I find extremely worrisome, is that you have, you have decisions that are made at a fundamental level at all of these institutions that basically prohibit any view that is not consistent with the political establishment are in various Western societies. And that is very, very troubling. Well, Ramsey, as you know, I mean, there's been a, a global response to Ukraine, quite rightly, most people believe. And when it comes to the UN Charter, the Geneva Conventions, the ICJ, all the rest of it, uh, people are pretty clear. And one of the main um, weapons used against Russia and against President Putin in particular have been sanctions. And yet, at the very same time, this bears out what you're saying, we have in Britain an attempt by the British government to stop local authorities from advocating sanctions against Israeli companies that operate in the occupied territories, and indeed against uh, individuals and organizations who call for sanctions. And, I mean, and, and more than opinion see this, and not just more that. than that, Mark, the, the very criminalization and condemnation of the Palestinians or the pro-Palestine justice and freedom activist that promotes uh, a boycott for Israel. For example, here in the US, it's been a while since I checked, but as of a year or so ago, over 25 states in the United States that, that, that either criminalize or has condemned the Palestine uh, boycott BDS movement. Uh, in Canada, uh, BDS was also condemned in various European uh, society is BDS is being fought and condemned and, and it's considered a form of, of, of uh, racist, uh, uh, you know, uh, hate speech. Uh, and, and BDS activists have actually stood trials in various societies, namely Germany and others. So we are not, we, uh, this is why I'm saying that the word double standards doesn't even apply anymore. We are here in a situation where the very people demanding accountability are the people who are actually paying the price as if they are the ones who have actually committed the crime. While the criminals themselves are basically whining and dining in various, uh, you know, uh, 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 European capitals, and they are doing very good business. The uh, illegal Jewish settlements, for example, in the West Bank, are the kind of really the the, the churning engine of of the Israeli economy at the cost of, of billions of dollars, uh, and so mm. forth. So, so here we are in the situation. If you don't mind me, Mark, just bringing the element of sports in particular, because yeah. this is something that a lot of people care about all over the world. You know, when we went after FIFA, demanding that FIFA holds Israel accountable, we did not even, although we would love to see Israel being kicked out of FIFA altogether, the demand has really been quite modest, which is Israeli football teams in illegal Jewish settlements should not be part of the, of the football roster, should not be involved in, in Israel's you know, uh, FIFA-sponsored football games. And that we were told point blank and repeatedly 
that politics and sports do not mix. <laughs> uh, to the point that there is a team uh, called Bitar Jerusalem. It's a team that its chant, its chant is, is death to the Arabs. This is a chant that even Israeli uh, far-right ministers and far-right officials have joined them. And it's documented, it's on film. Everybody, thousands of people chanting death to the Arabs. But we couldn't even get Bitar Jerusalem to be punished by, by FIFA. Now think about this in contrast. Teams like, for example, the Celtics that had to pay a heavy fine because of the pro-Palestine chants by its fans uh, in the stadium. Or the, the Deportivo Palestino in Chile that had to pay a heavy fine for merely using the Palestine historic map on their jerseys. And there are numerous examples of that. Mm. We saw what happened in the Olympics in Japan in 2020-21, when Algerian uh, 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 judo player was, was basically kicked out of the judo association for 10 years because of his moral stance on Palestine by saying, I will not normalize and engage another Israeli athlete. And yet... Yes. I mean, I would say, Ramsey, that you know, once once it becomes an unstoppable force, and and every athlete is is, is standing up as they have for Black Lives Matter, um, or other great issues of our time, uh, it becomes unstoppable. And I'm just wondering. I think we've got a vid a, a short video of uh, Ali Farage, um, uh, the Egyptian squash champion, actually showing that uh, yeah, politics and sport uh, are are part of the one and the same thing. Uh, I don't wonder if we can have a quick look at that. Going through that for the past 74 years. And, uh, and uh, yeah, one more thing that I know is going to get me in trouble, but, uh, but you know, we've all seen the, the, what's, what's going on in the world at the moment with Ukraine, and nobody's happy with what's going. Nobody should ever accept any, any killings in the world, any oppression. Uh, but uh, we've, all, we've never been uh, allowed to speak about uh, politics in sports, but all of a sudden now it's, it's allowed. So uh, that we're allowed, I hope that people also uh, look at the oppression everywhere in the world. I mean, the Palestinians have been going through that for the past 74 years. And, uh, and, uh, but I guess, but I guess because it doesn't fit the narrative of the, of the media of the West, uh, we couldn't uh, talk about it. But now that it's, so we can talk about the Ukraine, we can talk about Palestinians. So please keep that in mind. Thank you very much. Well, I mean, very, very, very powerful stuff. I mean, the the other the other thing, uh, Ramsey, we've been seeing, and we we were talking about this before the show started, actually, um, is the the Western media coverage of the Ukraine. It is a you know for for any news broadcaster it, the, the covering a war uh, such as uh, Ukraine, um, it's a very they're very very powerful stories to tell. Um, what's been interesting though is for a, is for some journalists this sort of um, this incredulity that. Uh, this war should be happening in Europe, where people are mainly Europeans, where many people go to church. Do you think that, you know, there is there is some... Well, let's have a quick look at one of the videos, if we may. I'll come to your sort of question with you, Ramsey. But let's have a, a look at one of these recent um, sort of expositions. The from Russians Western marching Germany. in, it's changed uh, the calculus entirely. Uh, tens of thousands of people have tried to uh, flee the city. There will be many more. People are hiding out in bomb shelters. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, 
you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. So it's partly human nature, but they are not in denial. Well, I mean, <laughs> at the very least, this poor correspondent hadn't quite established the fact that there's been war raging in eastern Ukraine for 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 at least eight years. That's almost a decade. But apart from all of that, I mean, and to be fair to him, he's since apologised. But what a giveaway. What a revelation. That's right. But, you know, it, it, it wasn't the relatively civilised, uh, relatively European that, that stopped me, as shocking as this is. But the fact that he still... Um, felt that he was choosing his words very carefully. <laughs> I, I mean, imagine if he wasn't choosing his words very carefully. The, the, and the, the, the thing, though, is that this is really the mentality. I mean, he is not the exception. We've reported from Iraq. We have uh, reported from the Middle East. I've reported from Gaza. I know what how Western journalists who represent, or not all of them, of course, but who represent and who adopt this kind of corporate mentality view that region. And but the thing that, that I find even more mind-boggling is that why haven't they stopped to think for a minute here? Is that since the US intervened in Iraq, occupied, invaded the country, um, why is it that they haven't really calculated that possibly the killing of over a million people in that region, that could not only killing all these people, destroying the incredible civilization, but it also destabilized the, the whole region, and we are feeling the reverberation of that savagery of the American invasion until this day, and sadly for many years to come. Why don't they see that as a form of um, lacking civilization and, 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 and lacking class and lacking civility of any kind? It's, so that's really the, the mindset of the racist. And I'm, you know, I know that this is a, a term that people are very careful using, but. If this is not outright racism, I don't know what that is. The thing about a racist mentality is that you never see your own fault, and you always project that on someone else. So it's now the, and we remember how the Iraqis, for example, were blamed by the U.S. government for the failure of the invasion of Iraq by simply saying, well, we haven't really failed. The, the Arabs are just not ready for democracy. We've been told that numerous times. Yeah, Iraq is not uh, a Scandinavian country, we were told. These people are not ready for anything even close to an American democracy. So not only Iraq was destroyed, not only the region has been destabilized, resulting in new wars, but also it was our fault after all because we were just not ready for Western and American democracy. Very, very interesting you say that, Ramsey, because you would have thought that reporter in Ukraine who was, who was, who was struggling with the idea that there could be a war in such a place hadn't realised that Ukraine has only been a democracy for probably the best part of a decade. I mean, it's, it is uh, absolutely... The, I mean, the trouble is, increasingly, when you point out uh, these... Uh, the hypocrisy, or should we be more politely, the inconsistency in all of these issues, uh, you're accused of whataboutery. They say, oh, all you're saying is whataboutery. Well, do you know what? I mean, you know, some of the cases we're looking at today, I mean, they, they also, we haven't really mentioned Libya. Um, Libya was a country, I mean, I, I've been there a few times, maybe, but I'm sure you've been there, Ramsey. 
I mean, if I had a vote in Libya and been Libyan, I certainly wouldn't have voted for Colonel Gaddafi. Um, but at the same time, the West reached an agreement with him. Tony Blair reached an agreement with him and uh, he got rid of any weapon, any offensive weaponry he had. And then NATO uh, bombed the place. I mean, it's um, it, it is quite it's quite extraordinary. And this is I mean, I suppose, you know, the, the real the real issue is uh, in a in a in a multipolar world. Uh, it's it's increasingly difficult to apply uh, international law or to have the UN Charter taken seriously when it is adopted where it suits, where one country uses it where it wants and where another country just... How do we try and use the horrors that we've seen in both Iraq and we're now seeing in Ukraine and other places in Yemen you mentioned? Um, oh, the, also the illegal occupations of other countries, including Western Sahara, another occupation that seems to be tolerated. How do we advance this case of consistency now? We've, we've just seen um, the Egyptian athlete bravely standing up. Is this what we're going to see more of? People saying, right, enough is enough. Occupation is occupation. Uh, invasion is invasion. Genocide is genocide. We need a consistent approach across the board, wherever it is. You know, I, I think it was uh, Gramsci, Mark, who said something to the effect that in between uh, massive geopolitical global transitions, we will live in what he called is the age of monsters. Uh, we know that the world is changing and the world has been changing way before Ukraine uh, even before Barack Obama has decided to execute what he called the pivot to Asia uh, and all of that. In fact, many argue that the, the Iraq war in 2003 was a desperate American attempt at changing the centers of power once more and maintaining its dominance for a bit longer. That did not really happen. And the world has been changing in so many different directions. You speak about the Sahara and West Africa. Well, you know, we know that uh, France is now being kicked out of Mali and also the Central uh, African Republic. And who's taking their place there? Russia is. So we, we see this happening at a global scale. But between this, this new world, world order in which we are still not really quite familiar or capable of understanding, it's, it's, will it be a bipolar world? Will it be a multipolar world? Will China uh, be the, uh, a leader in that new paradigm uh, from an, uh, uh, an economic uh, point of view as opposed to the military power of Russia and so forth. We still really don't know. But what we understand that we are already living in the, in the age of monsters. Uh, and, and all of these things that we hear and this, the, the, the double talk and the, and the double standards and the hypocrisy is kind of really kind of showing the real mask or the real face rather of Western governments that have been really inundating us, teaching us about human rights, democracy, international law, and they are the first to violate it when it's convenient to them. Ramsey, I mean, I think whilst we're on this whole issue of the uh, duplicity, if you like, the double standards, um, and and the fact that uh, it's it's you know it's it's quite possible, for instance, for uh, a media outlet now to go and report on Ukrainian citizens defending their homes and defending their towns and villages, making Molotov cocktails. Um, the idea that uh, a similar thing might happen in Ramallah uh, with Palestinians who might be tempted to make Molotov cocktails, well, we better not even go there. But I think we've got one more short video that we should share with you, and I think this is. Um, 
of uh, a young um, a young woman. Um, her name was uh, I had uh, Tamimi, um, and uh, this is actually I think it's worth showing this because actually this is this is the reaction on social media now. This went everywhere because people assumed that this young woman was Ukrainian when in fact she is Palestinian. But we could discuss that if we can if we've still got that video to share. Well, a very brave young woman then. Uh, but it's 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 interesting that so many people on social media chose to to share that uh, video because doubtless they were very very upset about what they're seeing in Ukraine and just assumed that whoever posted that knew what they were doing. But of course, whoever posted that made a, a bunch of racist assumptions, but also made one or two other slight mistakes. I mean, clearly, you know, there's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> in, in in language, but also uh, the terrain didn't look particularly Ukrainian. But, I mean, what does that tell you about social media as well? Well, you know, once upon a time, social media was um, kind of was a, a ray of hope that maybe we have finally found a way to navigate our way around the mainstream media, corporate media, official media discourses that have been uh, really kind of dominating the, the you know, political discourse uh, on, uh, on many of these issues for so many years. Uh, you know, we all remember Noam Chomsky's uh, famous book, uh, Manufacturing Consent, where he discusses how the media, even though it's supposedly private or independent or corporate owned, in actuality is an arm for the government that is used to uh, basically to push their own agenda, whether in the Middle East or Southeast Asia or anywhere else in the world. Um, so social media was that kind of room that would allow the likes of me to navigate a little bit, space to negotiate a little bit of room that is not uh, entirely controlled. But here we are, sadly, having to face this mm. new reality that our opinions are now being censored and that uh, Facebook and others are now, they are not behaving as a platform for information, uh, just merely facilitating the free flow of information but rather as journalists, as editorial staff, deciding what uh, is to be allowed and what is not to be allowed. What they well, agree with, what they disagree Ramsey, with. I mean, um, challenge more. Yeah, De Debbie in Stockport actually makes a similar point to the one we just discussed. So she says, we've seen the New York Times expertly produce videos explaining the Molotov cocktail making process. Why don't they do the same for Palestinians? But let's not forget the New York Times has still, I think, yet to report the Amnesty International report, 
which set out the reasons why they, Amnesty International, believed Israel to be practicing apartheid policies. And as you mentioned, that um, what has been going on in uh, much of the Western media is also, I don't know that we, we mentioned this before, um, uh, Ramsey, but here in the, in the UK, uh, recently, we had much the same from the Guardian newspaper, a liberal newspaper, um, that actually used, uh, I think, that the, uh, the the excuse of community standards to stop um, a number of us, inclu- you know, including me, from referring to Archbishop Tutu's comparisons between the apartheid of South Africa and apartheid in Israel. Now, the editor late, uh, later intervened and apologised and said it was down to shortage of staff. But we do have this quite pernicious control over language. I think you've written about this quite a lot yourself in the past, and we've seen it not over, over, over just over apartheid, um, but over settler colonialism, over a whole, uh, even, even describing people as Palestinian and using the word Palestinian to describe a cookbook. This is the kind of censorship that we're seeing. Oh, exactly. It, it is censorship. And in the case, you know, for, for us Palestinians... So do you we... think you might... Go ahead. No, 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 I'm just I mean, absolutely agreeing with you. I mean, the thing is, how, how do you think that what we have seen and, and what we're now seeing in Ukraine, how do you think things are now going to change? Because it's so obvious to people, even people who aren't necessarily informed or sympathetic necessarily to that. But they, people will say, yes, it's that is not that's not right. You know, but it should be this pe- people. Have, most people have this sense of justice, which Tony Benn would talk about. Um, exactly. I, I think they will change in some um, as, uh, respects and, and, and will remain the same in others. Um, the New York Times, uh, which you've mentioned and based on the question by Debbie, um, I don't think the New York Times is going to be changing anytime soon uh, because this is, you know, it's America's, you know, a newspaper of record. Well, the official record, that is, uh, certainly does not represent the record of, of oppressed people, neither in this country or anywhere else for that matter. That is going to remain the same. My hope is that what is happening right now, this this in your face, uh, you know, uh, duplicity, double standards, hypocrisy, whatever you want to call it, is going to wake up more and more people who maybe have argued, well, maybe there is, you know, Palestinians are exaggerating a little bit. Maybe this is not, uh, let's always consider the other side. Maybe Maybe now they will wake up that we haven't at all been exaggerating. And this is, the sad and tragic reality that has been shadowing this so-called conflict for so many years. So I think it will open up the conversation among numerous groups and civil society organizations that kind of more or less kind of stood on the fence over the years. Now they have to understand, you have to make a choice. Do you stand with us the same way you are standing with the Ukraine and and, and other people that, that suit the interests of, of Western agenda? Or do you want to continue to betray the Palestinian people as the West have betrayed us for so many years since the uh, Israel was established on the ruins of Palestine in 1948 until this day? Mm. And by the way, Ramsey, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm uh, mindful of the fact that we haven't even got round to mentioning the Kurds yet. But anyway... Um, we, Natasha in Manchester has got a question for you, and she says, um, why have Russian oligarchs such as Roman Abramovich been so keen to obtain Israeli citizenship in recent years? And why did his private jet fly into Tel Aviv on the first day of the Russian invasion? 
Why do you think? Do you, would you, you throw any light on this? Do you think why is doing? Uh, that's right. Um, we know after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was this uh, emergence of you know the great deal of corruption. Uh, the Soviet's resources were stolen left and right, and we know that's the origins of the oligarchs of of today's Russia. Uh, but why are they so well connected to Israel? Well, it's kind of quite obvious, uh, honestly. I mean, Israel is always keen on doing business and, and expanding its economic ties and its strategic interest in countries using these kind of wealthy classes. Uh, and by the way, this is not just in Russia. I mean, where it seems that we are only using the word oligarchs in the context of Russia, but American oligarchs. And the relationship with the Israel lobby in Washington, D.C., they are the biggest supporters. Billions of dollars of American oligarchs' money find its way to Israel annually in one way or another. The same thing in Europe and the same way elsewhere, um, including South Africa, by the way. So Israel is always very, very keen to tap into that oligarchs class because that's where business interests can be maintained and that's where political favors can also be exchanged. I mean, it should also be said, to be fair, that um, uh, Britain has been very open to all of this. In fact, um, passed legislation essentially to allow very rich people to, to effectively buy citizenship for periods of time, including um, Roman Abramovich. London is uh, is known in some places as the as the laundromat of Moscow, the Moscow laundromat. Here is this is London. So you know, um, Britain has been party to all of this as well but you know i just wonder because we're sadly we're beginning to end um you're coming to the end of our time with you ramsey um i'm just yeah i mean just looking forward i mean we have i think this people have seen in recent days this uh we've seen very brave people standing up saying what's happening in ukraine is unacceptable it's appalling um but some of these things, many of these, all of these things have been happening to us for years. And where are you? And I think this this cry of, of injustice, this cry for a, a new world order, if you like, built on consistency and justice and peace is so powerful now. Um, and it becomes much more difficult for the reasons we've all been talking, we've been talking about tonight, and the fact that we can see for ourselves what's been happening uh, uh, in the Palestinian, in Palestine, for instance, we can see what's happening. Um, but I, I suppose the question is, do you, amidst the, the sort of horrors of war, amidst the, the fear even of nuclear war, I mean, are you, are you a bit more hopeful Um that you know, Palestinians can feel a sense of justice again. Uh, yeah, you know, as a Palestinian, I have to be hopeful, <laughs> and this is something that goes back. It just it's um, it, it's in our nature because we are fighting against numerous numerous odds, um, and you know, the Western bias towards Israel and all of this doesn't even begin to convey part of the story of, of the obstacles facing the Palestinian people in the Middle East worldwide and in Palestine itself. So we kind of developed this tactic, this kind of collective strategy of always being hopeful, because if you're not, then it's over. There's nothing to fight for. But then, on the other hand, I am also hopeful that, that as I said earlier, that there's grower, you know, growing awareness is being built, uh, you know, built uh, around this concept that the West-controlled international system 
is just not answering any question anymore. It's not really serving its purpose anymore. All of these lies and illusions about a fair, democratic, international system that is uh, that behaves according to principles of the human rights and justice and respect for international law, none of this is valid anymore. And there is a need to think outside that paradigm to discover something new. And my hope is really is 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 not just the you know that the West is just gonna suddenly wake up and become more moralistic. That's not going to happen. My hope is that re new regional alliances around the world will start slowly building a new system, at least to balance out the, the Western agenda that has failed us. It has failed not just the, the, the global community, but it has failed Western societies as well, that they are struggling with poverty, with uh, inflation, with lack of political certainty, with the deterioration of their democracies, with the, the rise of the far right and the nationalistic trends and all of that. They are too looking for answers. I'm really hoping that at one point, this could become the opportunity for us that we can, as a global community, start seeking those answers collectively beyond the exist existing dominant uh, Western and American dominance of all global affairs. Well, thank you very much indeed, Ramsey. Um, Helena says, uh, brilliant, illuminating discussion. Thank you. Um, and of course, I must say that please, if you haven't already, do get out and buy uh, Ramsey's new book, uh, the, the, a book in collaboration with uh, Elan Pape, uh, another of our friends, A Palestine Deep Dive. Uh, there we have it. Look, our vision for liberation, uh, engage Palestinians and intellectuals speak out um, with a with a, there's Roger Waters, um, who says uh, this is a fascinating, great book. Roger Waters, as you know, is a founding member of Pink Floyd uh, and another great supporter of the Palestinian cause. Well, look, thank you so much, Ramsey, for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Um, great to see you. Uh, all power to you. And, um, and thank you also to Omar and to Alex, uh, to our colleagues. Um, and until next time, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Omar. Thanks, everybody. Oh.